we're, we're in Romans chapter 8, um, looking from verse 18 to verse 30, and it's the topic of suffering. We started that last week. Trevor introduced the topic for us, helped us to understand a lot more about the Christian perspective on suffering. The fact that it is inevitable, that suffering is coming, trouble is coming. We aren't necessarily spared trouble and hardship. And it comes in different ways. It comes through persecution. It comes because of our own sin. Sometimes we make sinful choices and that puts us in a place where we end up suffering. Sometimes we um, are fall victim to the fallen world in which we live. So that could come in the form of somebody driving into us in the traffic or uh, sickness or illness. There's all sorts of suffering that goes on in the world. So it's a, it's a really cheerful subject today. So put a smile on your faces and <laughs> let's, let's sit back and enjoy it. Um, I was going to tell you some of my own experiences in suffering. But then as I was driving here, I, I thought to myself, you know, sometimes there's more pleasure in the telling than there is in the listening. Um, and I know that there's more than enough people here in our congregation today just looking out over you everybody's facing some sort of a trial or another and this is such a relevant subject for us uh, so instead I I'd like to read briefly from Isaiah this is what the Lord led me to Isaiah 43 I don't know, somehow in my pocket, this must have got scrolled away from the place that I was hoping to find it. Um, Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, this is what the Lord says, worth listening to. He who created you. We want to hear something from the one who's created us, don't we? He who formed you. Then he says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. There's three things there. Man, we could, we could unpack all of that. It would take a long time. And then he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Why? What's the reason? What's the explanation? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel your savior and so what i get from that folks is that god doesn't necessarily deliver us out of our trials but he will always deliver us through our trials he is there with us walking with us as we go through the flood he's there with us as we go through the fire to make sure that we are delivered through our trial the thing is what I'd like to do today is to gain some more perspective on how do we actually do that? What do we actually hold on to as we go through the trial? And we're going to learn today from Paul because he was an expert at pain and suffering. Let's read. I'm going to read to you from 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24. It'll be up on the screen. These are his credentials as a person who is qualified to talk about suffering and how God helped him to be delivered through the suffering. He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, I think it is on the, yeah. is it there? Oh, good. 
Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So anyone who's good at maths, how many times is that? Almost 200, eh? Um, close enough. Yep, 200 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. There's a perfect example. He wasn't delivered out of the storm. He was delivered through the storm. God provided him a piece of wood to cling onto so that he wouldn't drown. Um, I was shipwrecked and at and a night and a day I was adrift at sea. Can you imagine that? On frequent journeys in danger of rivers, danger of robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger, quite a lot of danger there. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night. Oh, I hate sleepless nights. I'm sure you do as well. In hunger and thirst, we don't often experience that. We're blessed, often without food, in cold and exposure. And folks, this says nothing about his frequent imprisonments. I don't know how many times he was imprisoned. I have never gone through and counted it up. So what is he telling us today? He's telling us three things. He's telling us to consider one thing and take a strong grip on it. And he's telling us to know two things and take a strong grip on those. Consider one thing, know two things. What do we need to consider? We need to consider the promise of glory and keep a grip on it. So when we look at the start there, he begins with the phrase, I consider. And when someone says that, it means that they're not about to make a throwaway comment. They're not just speaking off the top of their head. This is as a result of weighty reasoning, thinking, figuring it out. I consider. And he comes to a conclusion. This, this word, if you look at it in the Greek, it means to take an inventory of the pros and the cons of a matter and to weigh them up carefully in the scales and to arrive at a conclusion. It's an exercise of the mind. It's like meditation. And on the one side of the balance, what do we have? We have present sufferings. And on the other side of the balance, we have the promise of the glory of God, our future glory. So the first thing I would say to you is if you're suffering today, you need to start considering. But the chances are your focus is on your present sufferings. You're probably meditating on your present sufferings. What's going on in my life? Why has this happened to me? Is my wife going to make it? What's going to happen to my child if they don't get into this school? Or what's going to happen if this happens or that happens? And we start meditating on the one side of the balance. Let's stop doing that. There is a sense in which we do need to obviously figure things out. But we also need to make sure that the promise of future glory is tipping the balance in the other direction. So, don't forget the future glory. Let's just read from verse 18 through to verse 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself is looking forward to the time when we become completely glorious, when we're transformed by God. Glorious in the sense that we become an accurate representation of what God is like. 
perfectly patient, perfectly just, perfectly loving, and all of those good things. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We're going to unpack this a little bit. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. There's a whole lot of groaning going on, isn't there? Creation is groaning. We're groaning. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly because we can just see the difference between what is coming and where we actually are. We're just waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, what would make, and this is what we're going to find from this passage, what would make your future glory so weighty that your present sufferings are not even worth comparing with it? And Paul tells us, so let's begin considering our future glory through the eyes of Paul. And I would encourage you to go back to this passage. If you're struggling at the moment, take some time to consider this. Notice that creation is groaning, okay? Why is it groaning? Because it's been subjected to futility. We see that in verse 20, verse 20. and it is in bondage to decay. We see that in verse 21. Why? Why is creation subject to futility? Why is it in bondage to decay? Well, it's because of mankind's lack of glory. You know, the creation wasn't created the way it is now at the beginning. It was created without any death. It was created without any sin. But it was us, human beings, who brought sin into creation. And with that sin came death. And so we're the ones who messed up God's beautiful creation. It's been corrupted by our sin because we no longer have the glory of God in us. We were created to be an accurate representation of God with all those good characteristics I talked about earlier. But we lost them because we rebelled against God. And so creation has been corrupted by our sin. But not only is creation groaning, folks, we as Christians are also groaning. Why? Look at verse 23 there. It's because we've had a taste of our future glory. Paul refers to that as the fruits of the Spirit. We start to see what it could be like to live in a way that pleases God. When we actually have the power to obey God and to be patient like He is patient and loving like his, He is loving. But you know that glory We've only got a limited taste of it because it's now and it's not yet. Yes, we have been adopted as children. Yes, we have the Spirit in us producing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and so on. He's given us the gifts. Sometimes when we pray for people, they're healed. Sometimes they aren't. But we've had a taste of what it could be like. The problem is that we're still drawn to sin. And if I'm anything to go by, we do sin. Our bodies are growing old. They get sick. They get hurt. And we live in this fallen, broken world. Trevor was explaining it to us last week that's corrupted by sickness and natural disasters and accidents and violence and all manner of awful things and behavior. But one day, we will be restored 
to our former glory, to the way that God originally created us to be, to his original intention. But now we ask the question, well, is that a good thing? Is this something that's worth considering? Look at verse 23 up there. Up here. <laughs> I've also got it up there. Verse 23 talks about the redemption of our bodies. And remember, we spoke of that two weeks ago. It means that we're going to get resurrection bodies that will never grow old, that will never lose energy, they'll never be tired, we'll never fall sick. Resurrection bodies, bodies that will be like Christ's resurrected body as a human in heaven. And now this is great. It really is great. But your future glory, folks, is not about you alone. Because Paul actually links it to the release of all creation from its bondage to corruption. Do you see that in verse 21? Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Folks, our future glory, it actually beggars the imagination. So much so that the entire universe is eagerly waiting for it. It's longing for it. Because after all, it was our lack of glory, our sin, that caused death and corruption to enter creation. Our lack of glory was so weighty and powerful that it ruined the universe. But imagine how powerful our restored glory is actually going to be. God is going to renew all of creation, and it can rest secure because we will have glorified bodies. Why? Because the Holy Spirit in, is in us, and the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead, and so in the same way, He is going to raise us, may give life to our mortal bodies. And we won't have sin in us. And so the universe, this entire universe, will be safe and secure again. That's why the universe is looking forward to our glory. That's why our glory is such a waiting thing, weighty thing that all our troubles and hardships now are nothing in comparison to it. And so Paul says with absolute assurance, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. So folks, if you're suffering today, and I know there's so many people in Harvest that are battling, they're struggling with different things, some are massive, some are a bit smaller, but whatever they are, they're real to us, they're hard, God is allowing them. We need to start considering. Spend some time in your quiet times just thinking about what it's going to be like to have that resurrected body. Look forward to it. But don't forget that you need to combine your considering with hope and with perseverance. We need to take a grip on the promise. Do you see verse 24 there? It says, For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for those who, for who hopes for what, it, what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Folks, consider your future glory, but then also persevere. Don't give up. Don't give up. Just keep going. Put one foot in front of the other. Why? Because we are expecting God to deliver on his promise that one day we will have that glory in us. One day we will be resurrected. And the reason why we put our hope in that promise is because we can trust the person who made the promise. 
There's some people who we can't rely on if they make a promise to us. We can't rely on them, but God is more than able to deliver on His promises. Reflect on how amazing your Father is and know that He will deliver on this promise, that He will make sure that you cross the finish line into eternity and receive your resurrection body, totally removed even from the presence of sin. Now, this talks about us laying a hold of something. This talks about us considering. This talks about us trusting. But, you know, that isn't the whole side of the picture because there are times when we're going through suffering that we just, frankly, we're just not even in a place to be considering. We're not even in a place to be holding on to hope. We're just gritting our teeth and trying our best. And it's at times like that that we need to know that not only are we holding on to something, but God is holding on to us. There's two things that we can learn and that we can see and that we can know. Let's look at verse 26. Know that you are in the grip of a God who prays. Likewise, I'm not crying or anything. <laughs> it's just my voice breaking. <laughs> Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Why does Paul begin with these words, likewise, the Spirit? Well, we've learned that we're groaning. We've learned that creation is groaning. He's telling us that likewise, the Spirit is groaning, but the Spirit's groaning is a productive groaning because it's prayer. When we're in the grip of suffering, folks, we feel overwhelmed. We feel weak. Why? Often because we just don't even know what's going on. We don't even know what to pray. And this is particularly true, not only when we're praying for ourselves, but people in our family or our loved ones who are going through suffering. We don't actually know sometimes how to pray for them. And that's because we lack glory. We don't actually know necessarily intimately what the will of God is. We don't necessarily have the wisdom that God has. But that's okay. Because it doesn't depend on us alone. You might be in the grip of suffering, but at the same time, you are in the grip of a God who is praying for you. So while you're considering, while you're processing with God, even when you're feeling overwhelmed and weak and confused, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you with groans too deep for words. And folks, many people have said that this is a reference to speaking in tongues. But actually, tongues is a gift that is given to you, a language that you can speak out as a prayer language to God. But this is not expressed. These are groanings that are not expressed. So it's not referring to the gift of tongues. This is referring to the fact that the Holy Spirit is quietly interceding for you and for your loved ones. So just get down on your knees and start praying and start lifting them up. You don't actually have to to pray a coherent prayer sometimes because at the same time the Holy Spirit is interceding for you in accordance with the will of God. Look at the significance of this. Turn there to verse 27, still up there on the screen. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit 
because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What does this mean? Where does the Holy Spirit reside? He resides in our hearts. So as God searches our heart, He finds out what the Holy Spirit wants to pray. It's a strange thing. I don't really understand it. But while the Holy Spirit is there in our heart, He is interceding for the saints according to the will of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? So, so amazing. So the Spirit is in your heart. He's there praying according to the will of God, even when you don't know what His will is. And this is mind-blowing. You might be in the grip of suffering, but you're also in the grip of a praying God. But there's more. This is the second thing that we need to know. It begins in verse 28. Know that you are in the grip of a God who's sovereign. In other words, he's in charge, in charge of everything. Look at verse 28. And this is one of our favorite verses in the Bible, isn't it? Let's just reflect on it. And we know that for those who love God, all things, or another way of putting this is that God works in all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Folks, this is the biggest miracle that God does as far as I'm concerned. He knows that we live in this fallen world. But whatever is happening to us, God works in it for our good. And this is the biggest miracle that I always pray for whenever people are suffering. When, I, when it's happening in my own life, when it's happening in my family, when it's happening for my friends, I just say, Father God, you have promised that you will work in this for the good of this person. Please do the miracle. But notice the two conditions, folks. All things work together for good. First of all, for those who love God. Second of all, for those who are called according to his purpose. Folks, if you love God, you might wonder whether you qualify for this. If you love God, it's because God called you. His call was effective in your life, and you love him. And he's called you for a purpose. What is the purpose? Look at the next verse. You were called to conform to the image of his son, to, to become like Christ, to embark on this process of changing so that you become more and more like Christ. That's the whole reason why God called you. That's the whole reason why he's promising you the hope of glory, because when you're glorified, you will be like Christ. You will be a perfect reflection of him. And folks, becoming like Christ in life, this is so important, that is your ultimate good. Folks, it's not a stress-free life. It's not a suffering-free life that is necessarily um, for your ultimate God good. It is becoming like Christ. Jesus. And if God can work in the things that are happening in our lives, and He can, so that we become more and more like Jesus, then He has achieved His purpose. But how do we know? Folks, how do we know that God can do that miracle? Can He deliver on that miracle? That He will work in all things for your good, because you love Him, and because you are called according to His purpose. Is He capable? Is he powerful enough? In other words, does he control all things? 
And Paul explains why we can be sure in verses 27 and 28. Do you see uh, yeah, verses 27 and 28? For those whom he foreknew... So he's, he's making an explanation there. How do we know that God is going to work in all things for our good? So he says, because, for, because those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Can you see the process there? There is foreknowledge. There is predestination. There is calling. There is justification. And there is glorification. Folks, let's begin at the start of this. Because it is the fact that God has done this that qualifies him to be in control of everything and to be able to say to us that he can work all things for our good, whether good or bad. First of all, God foreknew. This speaks of the fact that God knew about you, every one of you, before the universe was created. Paul puts, this, uh, puts it this way in Ephesians 1 verse 4. He said, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God foreknew you. It's a bit like one of those selectors that starts going to junior school matches to see the promising rugby talent. God knew. He saw the person that he wanted in the team, eventually in the national team or whatever it was. God foreknew. Then God predestined. And this is still before the dawn of time. This is before the world has been created. God predestined. In other words, he rendered it certain that you would become his child. He made sure of it before the dawn of the world. He didn't look ahead to see whether you would choose and then make his choice based on that because then his choice would have been shaped by your choice. No, quite separate from that, he decided. In love, he predestined us for adoption. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. To himself, as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So God foreknew, God predestined, and then it says that God called. And now we move into the dimension of time and space. You arrived on the scene, you've probably been born just like Bjorn was born a few weeks ago, gasping and desperate for air. And then at some stage in your life, God started to call you. Paul tells us in, later on in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard about, in the word about Christ. Faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So most likely in different ways and at different times, maybe through songs, maybe through people speaking to you, maybe you started to read the Bible, you heard God's call through the good news about Christ. And when that happened, faith was stirred up by God in your heart to put your trust in Him. For you, predestined, called, God justified. 
when you put your faith, and this is what the whole of the beginning part of Romans was all about, when you put your faith in Christ's work on the cross, you were declared innocent according to God's law. Your name was actually cleared. God ended up sending his son to take the punishment for your sin so that you could be declared right, in right standing with God. And this is not because you deserved it, but because Jesus earned your pardon from God. For you, predestined, called, justified, and then last of all, glorified. And I just put a picture up there because sometimes theologians call this the golden chain of salvation. It stretches from eternity past, from before time, into eternity future. And the last link in the chain is the future glory. That's what Paul was talking about today. That's what he was talking about back in, in Romans chapter 5 when he said we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's what we rejoice in. This fact that one day we're going to be glorified. And that glory will make your present sufferings just seem like a gentle pinch. I can assure you of that. But let me emphasize something that's of really significance, great significance. When Paul wrote this in the Greek, he wrote it in the past tense. <laughs> this, this is just so amazing. He was so sure that those who had been foreknown and predestined and called and justified, he was so sure that they would end up crossing the finish line that he wrote it in the past tense as if it had already happened. And the theologians call that the prophetic past tense. He's prophesying something about the future, and he says, I'm so sure it's going to happen, Leon, that it's already happened. I prophesy that it's already happened. You will, you are already glorified. Folks, and this is the assurance that we have when we face difficulty and hard things, is that no matter what happens to you in life, God is going to work it together for good. And he, the sovereign God, will make sure that you cross the finish line. This is the one assurance that we hold on to. <laughs> and the great thing is that it's actually God holding on to us. He is praying for us as we grapple with these things. As we maybe even say to God, this is not fair. I'm really miserable. I'm, I don't know what's going on. I don't feel loved by you. Even as you're saying those things, the Holy Spirit is praying for you or praying for the person that you're praying for in accordance with the will of the Spirit. He knows that you're on that golden chain of salvation. He's so sure that you will be glorified that he's spoken it as though it's already happened. Folks, you may be in the grip of suffering but you're also in the grip of a praying, sovereign God, one who controls all things. And so it's no wonder that he writes in verse 31, which is just a taster of what's coming next week, a little promo for you there, um, Trevor. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Whatever it is that you're facing, no match. It's no match for God. If God is for us, who can be against us? And I, I just wish I could preach on the next one now. I'm a little bit envious of Trevor preaching on it next week because this is about the love of God. This is the third thing that we need to know as we face hardship and suffering. God is praying for us. We're in the grip of a sovereign God who's in charge 
but we're also in the grip of a God who loves us. That's a little glimpse of next week. Shall we pray together?